When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hello, and welcome to Digital Nomads, a podcast about nomadism and nomadic peoples around the world and throughout history. I'm your host, Maggie, and today I'm honored to be speaking with Dr. Carl Shook, who is a lecturer in the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago, where he teaches courses on modern Middle Eastern history, the geographical and cultural logics of colonial rule and territoriality, and modern Iraq. He also advises and mentors graduate students enrolled in the University of Chicago's Center for Middle Eastern Studies and teaches a survey of Islamic history at Loyola University, Chicago. Dr. Shook's research interests are the processes and effects of imperial and colonial state building, and in particular, boundary making and governance within the borderlands of new states. He received his PhD from the Department of Near Eastern Languages and Civilizations at the University of Chicago in 2018, where his doctoral thesis, which was titled The Origins and Development of Iraq's National Boundaries, 1918 to 1932, Policing and Political Geography in the Iraq Nejd and Iraq Syria Borderlands, demonstrated the importance of interactions between rural tribal populations, refugees, and provincial government officials to the formation of Iraq's modern borders. And this topic is what we'll be talking about today. So thank you so much, Carl, for joining me. All right. And Maggie, thank you very much, too. I'm looking forward to this. So I sort of just summarized your dissertation and your sort of research interests in my introduction there. But could you expand on that for listeners? So what were you studying? When? Where? Who were the kind of main actors that you were considering in your dissertation? Yeah. So, I mean, the timeline is pretty much exactly as you described it. Most of my uh, research and case studies come out of this period from 1918 to 1932, though to be honest, the sorts of documents and stories I was telling really come from uh, the early 1920s until 1927 or so. I mean, my approach to this question of boundaries and boundary making in general has been something I've been interested with, honestly, for even before I was a graduate student. But what I was particularly interested in concerning Iraq was to understand what happens before the treaties. So I want to know what happens before these sorts of final status documents and processes take place, before the map, before the League of Nations signs off on a uh, mandate for Mesopotamia, looking at sort of the backstory brought me to the processes of boundary making. And the people that I was studying and reading about are people who live and work in the Syrian desert, which is, you know, roughly essentially Western Iraq, Eastern Syria, 
just a little bit of the northern modern state of Saudi Arabia to give us kind of a, some mental geography here. Uh, in general, this area, particularly in the south of Iraq, is referred to as the Shamia. And, you know, crucially, the Shamia is a it's historical, it's a meaningful geographical, geological, you know, unit that, that is crossed by the modern state between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. But, you know, the, the people that I ended up encountering in the sources were provincial British forces, not sort of the bold-faced names that we're used to reading, certainly not many of the colonial elites based in Baghdad, also provincial uh, officials, district governors of the Iraqi government, and also, uh, and this is what really sort of grabbed my research and took it in a different direction, as most dissertation projects end up doing, uh, are the accounts uh, and the discourse and the relationship of these officials to the Bedouin tribes and sheikhs uh, living in this transnational zone or soon to be transnational zone of Northern Arabia and uh, the Syrian desert. So with all of these players in the field, you know, literally responding to historical forces, attempting to determine what this new political order meant for them uh, and their lives and their livelihoods, you know, I, I came at these questions with a couple different approaches. One of them was to look at borders as a process that involves these human figures um, and not as static institutions. Certainly not lines on a map or even worse, lines in the sand, if you wanna go that far. You know, I understand borders as a process beginning from the process of just imagining, projecting out, you know, loose understandings of territorial and social difference onto a landscape like, let's say, historical Mesopotamia. But then during negotiations and so the mechanisms of day-to-day -day rule and governance, again, before maps and borders are demarcated or even delimited. We're a long way from border posts being laid down in the desert and strict surveys being made of this work. And then working in this borderland as I was, uh, this fit with, with another one of my goals, which was to decenter these state-centric narratives about state building, and in particular, a state-centric historiography about the origins of modern Iraq. Um, in short, you know, these, these denizens of the borderland that I was speaking about and I ended up working on in my research um, have agency and through cooperation, through resistance, I argue they're able to shape, if not the final locations of the boundaries, uh, they're able to shape the nature of those uh, boundaries uh, going forward. And I think we see this in the kind of piecemeal nature of Iraq's boundaries. Each of them, if we just take a Western boundary, the Southern boundary with Nej, the boundary with Syria, the boundary with the Ottoman state, and then Turkey, um, all develop on their own terms, specific to the historical and local circumstances. Your dissertation focuses on the British occupation um, and the British mandate, but obviously they were kind of replacing um, or saw themselves as replacing the Ottoman Empire in this region. So backing up a bit, how did the Ottoman Empire conceive of and control this desert frontier region and its inhabitants? And to what extent were the British engaging with Ottoman traditions? What aspects, you know, did they maintain and what aspects did they change um, from Ottoman patterns of rule? 
Yeah. So what where I've come down on this question is I think that, you know, as the British took occupy, you know, Ottoman Iraq in 1914, um, and afterwards they arrived, you know, on the scene in agreement through their own processes in history, but more or less in agreement with the social division of Iraq's people. And also they agreed with a to a division of Iraq's physical geography as one of agrarian, an area with agrarian potential, i.e., you know, someplace that parts of it that are irrigable um, and can support agrarian life, and then the desert. So there's these two strict kind of binaries. Now, the British, I think, through their own sort of discursive history, agree with these ideas. So there's some agreement with the Ottoman approach, but what they actually inherit is a structure, a set of governing institutions, which are built on very similar basis. Let's take this back to the question of like how the Ottomans view things. Uh, I mean, the Ottomans perspective on, you know, what is now, you know, modern day Iraq is an idea that, I mean, one of their divisions is that urban society or settled society and culture is superior to rural or unsettled people. Um, so there again, there's this binary between settled peasants and settled tribes uh, who are sort of who are engaged or part of sort of an agrarian system of production. And in Iraq, certainly the Bedouin. The Bedouin in the Ottoman perspective were seen as a disruptive force in at least two senses. First, they were disruptive to settle this settled agrarian based society, these systems of production and you know sort of export of agricultural goods. And this occurred through raiding, predation of settled communities by Bedouin populations, and also through the competition for grazing land. So this is bad for farmers, right? So this reduces tax receipts for the uh, for the Ottoman treasury. It you know, might force uh, peasants off of the land, which again is to the detriment of agricultural production and the tax base. And it also disrupts regional trade networks, right, through the threatening, through the, the targeting of shipment routes and some of the more local caravan routes. So this is one way in which nomadic peoples were seen as disruptive. The other issue is that, again, in general, Bedouin societies being mobile, and relatively militarily proficient and somewhat independent and self-sufficient, uh, this means that they are uh, less easy to govern and they remain a liability to models of centralized government. Uh, there's a quote from an Ottoman official. Uh, he's in Basra, so southern Iraq in 1980 or 18, <laughs> 1880. He reports back that, quote, since only of the population in his area, right, was settled, then only 10% of the population is under governmental authority, right? So there's this idea that anyone living as a Bedouin is beyond our reach. The Ottomans attempt to continuously attempt to settle and bring Bedouin populations under control. Uh, we see this as part of this broader, you know, set of governing reforms under the Tanzimat policies of the mid 19th century. Changes to the land law, for example, you know, created tax incentives, provided uh, land use rights or ownership rights to sheikhs and others who were willing to settle down and you know, give up their, uh, their nomadic lifeways. And in general, the goal was to get uh, Iraq's tribes and especially the Bedouin to 
move from being sort of a, a net cost on the state, both in literal terms and in just the effort required to govern and bring them into the kind of tax producing society. I mean, one final note about the Ottoman view of things is now it, uh, the British enter Iraq in 1914 at the head of the Persian Gulf. They land at Fao and they quickly move up the Shat al-Arab to Basra. And their main goal for being there is to secure or to provide sort of a, uh, a regional sort of force in case the Suez Canal to the west in Egypt comes under attack and also to maintain access to the oil fields of southwestern uh, Iran in Nefaz. Of course, those, that oil by 1914 is being pumped out of the ground and moved to Muhammad and the, um, onto the Shat al-Arab process. And shortly before this, of course, one of the important backstories is you know, not only is the Persian Gulf and thus the Indian Ocean, of course, important to sort of Britain's position on the world stage, but they have recently transitioned their uh, naval fleet from coal to oil. So this is integral. Incidentally, oil in Iraq, Iraq's oil reserves are, they have been you know, surveyed to an extent. There is an idea that it is there. But in, in my opinion, in 1914, and even for some years after that, uh, Iraq's oil preserves itself are not so much the issue. But anyway, this Ottoman world that they that they come into is made up of three provinces. Starting from the south, uh, we have uh, the province of Basra, uh, which is kind of oriented towards the Persian Gulf and the Indian Ocean sphere. Uh, there's the province of Baghdad, and then uh, the province of Mosul, which borders Syria and sort of and Anatolia. And all of them are on this uh, are part of the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley and drainage system. So when the British arrive, one of their first goals is to sort of bring a government kind of up and running as quickly as possible. They're an occupying force. You know, until 1918, they are at war with the Ottoman government in Iraq. And this leads to a couple things. I think it's, it's important to point out first that the British are familiar with Ottoman Iraq already through a century of produced knowledge, firsthand experience, represented in maps, ethnographies, travelogues, and this sort of thing. People traveling in the region, uh, surveyors, sometimes in the employ of the Ottoman uh, government itself, uh, archaeologists are part of this knowledge production about not just the landscape of Iraq, but also its peoples. Uh, there are commercial officials and representatives um, active, you know, participating in concessions, for example, for shipment on the Euphrates and the Tigris at this time. Uh, there are naval officers who are there um, as part of this concession. Everyone involved in the oil industry, you know, working out of, based on the Shatal Arab and in uh, southwest Iran. There are Indian soldiers, uh, you know, British Indian soldiers who are escorting a pilgrim from India to cities like Najaf and Karbala um, as well. And then, of course, there's the military, the British military hub in uh, Kuwait. So there is knowledge about Iraq as a place and its people. There's also ideas about what Iraq is, sort of historical. So there's this, you read the sources, and this is everyone from travelers to British governors, British administrative officials, uh, talking about Mesopotamia's the term, their decline and fall, right? This is the site of, even from a Christian uh, point of view, 
right? You can draw back to the origin of mankind. There's a man named William Wilcox who uh, purported to discover, for example, the uh, the Garden of Eden using, you know, sort of like drainage or surveys of water courses and flood zones and things like this. But there's this idea that from the Abbasid period, certainly after Baghdad's sacking up by the Mongols in 1258, uh, that the Ottoman state that succeeded them eventually had been unable to sort of restore Iraq to its to its civilizational glory, to its golden age. They also hold that the people who live here in this in Mesopotamia, um, again, this is the British, you know, sort of perspective, is that settled populations are in a sense more civilized than nomadic peoples. And then we have the physical geography, and then we have these, or I would essentially say narrative-driven or orientalist understandings of the sort of Iraqis, you know, population. And these get mapped onto each other. Uh, so we get these, these cultural judgments about settled and unsettled environments and the people who live there. So, for example, Gertrude Bell writes about Euphrates Valley as, you know, being an inexhaustible fertility right, as sort of the core, the beating heart of Iraq. And then this is, you know, very much in opposition to the arid desert, right, the uplands up out of the river valleys. There's a geographer, John Lorimer, who's responsible for, you know, some of the really substantial collections of ethnographic and geographical information at the time. He also sees, you know, Iraq as being at its core, it's the Tigris and Euphrates River Valley. And you read through these his gazetteer, and it's clear that he and other people are not really sure what to do about the desert, right? The Syrian desert, the Arabian desert. They're not sure what to do about the Bedouin who live there. Are they part of Mesopotamian history and culture? Ultimately, uh, they come down to yes, but uh, they are a liability and they will require very particular kinds of governance to, to make the work. Okay, so you also you talked a bit about why the British were in Iraq in the first place, and obviously one of the primary reasons being oil. But you also said that that is possibly not the main reason, in your opinion, or that there were other reasons that the British had this kind of investment um, in Iraq. Can you talk mm-hmm. a bit about what those other reasons were? I mean, Iraq's the value of Iraq as an oil-producing state or site, I guess we should say, begins very quickly. Um, and by the end of the mandate, you know, there are joint initiatives and projects for exploiting oil around uh, to create Mosul, for example. But in 1914, and this continues, I think, really through at least the mid-1920s, uh, the agenda of the British in, you know, Ottoman Iraq. Uh, is to maintain and secure their trade networks in the Indian Ocean sort of sphere, right? Uh, The coast of East Africa, India, and the Persian Gulf, and of course, Egypt. Oil is also, you know, integral, as we mentioned, coming out of, you know, Southwest Iran. And then there's sort of laying on top of this is a transit or communication corridor linking Britain and uh, Europe and the Mediterranean with India. Now, for a time, most of this travel, most of this communication occurs comes through the um, through the Suez Canal. There are sort of lo- there are local or let's say regional concerns, but then there are there's also 
uh, specific aspects of Ottoman Iraq's makeup. And what I think was underappreciated in you know, sort of the, the list or the considerations of Iraqi or of the uh, British occupation of Iraq is the value that they placed on Mosul uh, province, not necessarily as an oil uh, producing province, but in the context of an ongoing war with the Ottoman Empire, uh, which continued into the early 1920s, each of Iraq's provinces was seen as sort of a domino. The understanding was that if Mosul falls, then Baghdad will fall. And if Baghdad province falls, then Basra province and uh, Britain's sort of foothold in the Persian Gulf uh, will be under threat as well. Can you just clarify a little bit what the situation is like in this early 1920s as far as Iraq's national borders, especially with like the Nejd? Like, what are the, the treaties or the protocols that have already been formed to create and govern these borders? Who are the actors that are involved in creating these borders? Yeah, absolutely. So by 1922, when we see the, the first um, sort of agreements pen to paper uh, between the, uh, the British Mandate authorities in based in Baghdad and Ibn Saud um, of uh, Nejd, uh, we have, as you you know, as I've alluded, we have a mandate. So we have this mandate system established in 1920. And in short, the mandate system has allowed the uh, the British Empire and uh, the French uh, to maintain a presence, an active presence in these ex-Ottomans lands. So the French are in Syria, greater Syria, uh, Syria and Lebanon, the British are in Palestine, uh, Transjordan and Iraq. Now, there are there are technical requirements to being a mandate power. And the essence is that the British and the French are here to assist sort of indigenous governments in Iraq and Syria, for example, until they are able to stand on their own. You know, literally, that's in the text of the, uh, of the League of Nations charter, right? Until they're able to stand on their own and as independent nations. In Iraq, this mandate is never put into place for reasons we don't really have time to get into today. Uh, the British want more autonomy. They essentially don't want to be limited by the terms of the mandate. They want to stay longer and they want to have a more robust military presence in Iraq, basically. Um, so they enact a series of uh, Anglo-Iraqi treaties and they these each of these kind of follows the previous one and this is what really governs and shapes Britain's role in Iraq. But some sort of state building still needs to happen. And whether you are a mandate in technical terms or in spirit, this means recognizable uh, sovereign borders. You know, before we get into these, just into the sort of the development of these borders themselves, I think it's important to point out that the British dominate the process of border formation. The Iraqi state, the the, the monarchy of uh, Faisal I, right? One of these Hashemite kings is part of the process, but the British and most importantly, British security concerns really dominate this process. So there are a couple agreements um, in play. Uh, they both date to 1922. Uh, and these are agreements with uh, Ibn Saud, who is the uh, uh, the leader of 
this sort of nascent uh, Saudi state. These agreements, they have, they have geographical aspects to them. Uh, if you look at the maps produced in these meetings and out coming out of these negotiations, there are, they are maps of uh, the Shamia and there are lines on them. And you see, you see a proposed neutral zone, this little flattened diamond shape that you see on some early maps of Iraq. Uh, you see different proposals for Kuwait's boundaries. But what's really at stake in these agreements from in these 1922 uh, treaties is sort of a more effective and social idea of territorial governance. So here the focus is twofold. One is to identify really for the first time in this context, uh, which tribes belong to, and this is again their term, which tribes belong to uh, Nejd and are therefore the responsibility of Ibn Saud. And then of course, which tribes are quote unquote Iraqi tribes. And the way that this is done is the territories, seasonal territories of each of these tribes, along with some information about where they are purported to spend you know, their time when they need to water animals at fixed wells. This information is kind of tabulated and a rough map is drawn up of where these tribes are most of the time. And then through these inevitably sort of overlapping territories or the term uh, Arabic is dira, a straight line is proposed, right? That more or less best divides these up. So this is one focus of the of the UKR and the Bahra agreements from 1922. Um, and then the other is to settle the question, a political question really, uh, between uh, mainly, again, mainly the British and Ibn Saud as to what this frontier zone will look like and particularly what state authority will look like in this frontier zone. So there are at this point within this document, you see prohibitions against sort of the hardening or the building up of uh, military uh, installations, police forces uh, within literally the vicinity of the border. The fact that this, everybody has their own idea of what the vicinity of the border is uh, leads to some problems later on. But that's really the, that sets the tone for the southern, for Iraq's southern border and its relationship with Ibn Saud. This recognition that there is no firm border, but there are certain tribes that are in one way or another associated with each state and sort of the technical terms of how to essentially form a boundary uh, regime, right? How as two neighboring states, how do we cooperate? How do we in effect work together to make this border meaningful for the people who live, who live there? So you've alluded quite a bit already to the Bedouin practice of intertribal raiding um, and that this was sort of a practice or behavior that the Ottomans really kind of wanted to control or to eliminate. Um, and then it seems like in this post-Ottoman period, it's again something where the imperial powers that be also perceive this practice as a threat to their territorial sovereignty. Can you talk a little bit about what what is intertribal raiding actually in the first place? When people say that, what does that actually refer to? And what did it mean and how did it function in a sort of Bedouin social or economic context? And then how did the 
British in this case perceive it? Why was it such a threat to sort of British security? Yeah, so in a you know sort of a political vacuum, tribe this intertribal raiding is the uh, sort of the predation, the acquisition of material goods, stock animals um, between one tribe and another. So how this works is the members of a particular clan or a tribe, uh, sometimes in you know a strategic or even temporary alliance with um, another clan or tribe will target either yet another tribe, a third party, their camps, their flocks. Uh, They might also target the caravans of merchants. Uh, They might target settled community, agricultural outposts, um, this sort of thing. I think it's important to note that these are not, these are not, this is not for purposes of territorial conquest. And it's, it's not political, except in the sense that a tribe's prestige or the legitimacy of a particular leader is going to be enhanced uh, by their ability to either successfully raid and thus provide you know, for the material wealth of their community, or the other side of that coin, able to you know, defend oneself and one's tribe. So, you know, intertribal raiding in the Bedouin sense is mainly for purposes of enrichment, to acquire uh, the necessary material wealth, raw materials, the animals, you know, sometimes prisoners are taken um, and ransomed. But what they share in common is it is a part of a, an economy of a kind. Uh, the purpose is not, again, not territorial. These can be very violent acts, but murder is not part of part of the purpose. I mean, Bedouin life can be uh, very insecure. Bedouin, like all nomads, are we know that they are very much integrated into you know settled uh, economies and lifeways and cultures. There is an interdependence there where we see uh, nomadic or pastoralist populations like really flourishing, but it can be difficult. And in particular, the dependence upon animal husbandry means that uh, environmental conditions sort of require alternative sources of supplementing one's flocks and one's livelihood. So this is in general kind of why we see the development and the continuation, the perpetuation of these intertribal raiding. Yeah, I think there's also this, like you mentioned, there is this etiquette to intertribal raiding that we don't really, that we wouldn't necessarily kind of think of Mm -hmm. as existing. Mm -hmm. Like you said, murder isn't allowed. There are all these kind of rules that govern this practice that make it quite controlled in its own way Mm -hmm. and kind of Mm -hmm. internally controlled. Uh, I was reading this report a while ago uh, by a British official who was interviewing a Bedouin sheikh about raiding. Um, And he asked the sheikh, why do you guys raid each other? You know, why do you need to do this? And allegedly the sheikh says, why do you British people play football? There's Mm -hmm. that like kind of cultural aspect to it as well. Yeah. I mean, even in that conversation, right, there's, you know, I kind of off the cuff mentioned at the beginning, like, you know, in a in a sort of a vacuum. But what I really meant was in a particular context in which this Bedouin life way is more or less, you know, stable. Like, you know, you're exact every, you know, you're you're exactly right. And you see the way that rating filters down and permeates and becomes part of uh, a Bedouin uh, sense of self and identity, you know, uh, the stories, the 
maintenance of you know kinship ties, the saliency of you know clan and tribal uh, networks. So what happens in nineteen in let's say just the beginning of the twentieth century when conditions are very different? So in the mandate, the mechanics, the reasons, uh, the motivations for intertribal raiding is more or less the same. Uh, but there are all, there are now a couple new factors. One is that uh, through the politicization of partly of territory in the way that the Ukare agreements, for example, between the British and Ibn Saud put political label on certain tribes, but also in the way that the British, you know, the Iraqis, but also uh, the governments of Transjordan, the French in Syria are uh, claiming territory. This adds a political level to intertribal raiding. Um, and it's at this point that uh, raiding really becomes an issue for, uh, for the British and for the process of Iraqi state building. And it's this conflict between tribes in what becomes the borderland that we see the sort of the Bedouin sort of role in uh, the development of Iraq's borders. On that note, there's this episode that you wrote about in your dissertation that I found really interesting, where this conflict over cross-border raiding essentially arises between Ibn Saud and the Ikhwan. And maybe you can explain also in a second um, who the Mm -hmm. Ikhwan were on one side and the Iraqi government and the British on the other, where this kind of conflict arises over what you were alluding to earlier, actually, this kind of perceived militarization of the border region that is supposed to be a neutral zone, there arises this misunderstanding over what does it mean to build kind of military installations in this region? What does it mean to be in the vicinity of the border? These kind of particularities of the treaty that you were referring to previously. Can you unpack that conflict a little bit? Yeah, yeah. So there is a uh, ostensibly a a, uh, a treaty between you know Ibn Saud and uh, the British that you know prevents the development of the borderland, and I think this speaks to, in one regard, to a British idea of state building and one that Ibn Saud more or less acquiesced to, that the border can be developed in stages. There's very much this understanding that first we will establish sort of the terms of governance. Sometimes these terms are established through, you know, a treaty and negotiation, and sometimes they're established through facts on the ground. And in this case, you know, that you're alluding to, we see both. Uh, we see these parallel approaches by the British and the Iraqi government to some extent to both uh, honor the agreement with Ibn Saud, mainly for the purposes of avoiding open conflict with him, especially the British have a a long-term investment in Ibn Saud as the ruler of Nejd. And at one point, you know, during the height of this this border war in uh, 1927 and 1928 between between Iraq and the Ikhwan, there's just this reminder, it's like, okay, like, do not let this derail our relationship with uh, Ibn Saud. Like, this is literally a sideshow. So there's this concern about 
you know, sort of the technical aspects of building an internationally recognized state. But the British were also really experts in Iraq. And you see this in the case with the with the Iraqi border with Syria as well, of creating uh, facts on the ground. And for the British, this meant the gradual um, extension of security infrastructure out from the, you know, if you imagine southern Iraq, we have you know, the Shat al-Arab waterway runs from the head of the Persian Gulf northwards through Basra. And then the where it splits with the Tigris, it runs more or less east-west for a while, sort of parallel with the frontier with, with Nij. And out of this sort of riparian zone where most where there are roads, there are villages, there is, you know, sort of the in- infrastructure of government. There extends gradually through lots of different processes over the early and mid-1920s. Roads, uh, air patrol routes, wireless uh, radio stations, and all the sorts of maps and intelligence that goes with it. Now, what this sort of penetration of this, the the frontier involves is uh, twofold. Its main focus is on maintaining security in this area against raids coming from Nijd. But the reason they're doing this, because much of the British, their vision, and I think they were largely correct, of how to legitimate their power was through the prestige accumulated from demonstrating an ability to protect Iraq's tribes. Um, and again and again in the sources, the, the colonial sources anyway, there's this concern for uh, the loss of prestige, the loss of face, a fear that Iraq's tribes would see the British as a uh, insufficient or incapable partner in protecting them. And then the argument goes, if they lose the respect of these tribal populations, they would face revolt and they would possibly face the loss of Iraq. So they are steadily, steadily increasing their presence in southern Iraq, in this area of the Shemia. Um, it's not consistent. It's not smooth. It literally depends on the season. A lot of these kind of these far-flung posts are not sustainable through the middle of the summer. But gradually over time, they build a network of posts. These are places where tribes will check in. Uh, they often um, relate them to uh, caravan routes or wells in attempt to hijack the hubs of Bedouin uh, life as a way to present these populations with government authority. It's a chance to interview sheikhs, collect intelligence on the goings on in the area, both in southern Iraq and in northern Arabia, in Nijd. So in 1927, there are sort of several sort of outposts along this this stretch of in southern Iraq, and they sort of sweep up in a northwesterly direction from uh, the Euphrates, sort of in parallel with the modern, with the present day boundary of the Iraqi-Saudi border. Um, In 1927, uh, there's a decision to uh, supplement the uh, police force um, and build up an outpost. Um, at a place called Busaya. Uh, there's some uh, some wells there. This is a watering hole, basically. And to hear the British say it, this is just a humble fort. It's a little mud hut. No big deal. Uh, they tell Ibn Saud that it's purely defensive in nature, right? This is not should not be seen as sort of an incursion or you know encroachment upon the boundary. 
there's this back and forth about what counts as in the vicinity of a callback to this rather vague language from their original treaty. But in a sense, it's exactly what the British do, for example, in extending the boundary around to the west of Jebel Sinjar are up in Syria as opposed to, you know, kind of striking right through the desert. They are creating facts on the ground by leveraging their pretty much their superior security apparatus. And it's actually not Ibn Saud who ends up taking action against this, against this outpost. Uh, it's the son of the Mutar Sheikh, who is actually has been in low uh sort of a low-key on again off again revolt against Ibn Saud. It's actually these members of the Ikhwan, the Muter tribe, who attack this fort at Busea. And it is it is not a case of uh tribal raiding against a you know a, a site. Uh it is a military attack and uh most of the military and civilian uh staff at this post at Busea are are killed. So this immediately calls for a response from the British and from the Iraqi point of view. A strong, you know, sort of military response is required. It begins uh, what's known as the Ak Force campaign. But notably, the British do not want to come into conflict with Ibn Saud. And despite some pretty mealy-mouthed apologies by Ibn Saud, that he just didn't know anything about this and he had no idea it was coming, uh, they agree not to press the point. Again, we want to keep our eye on the ball, keep people like Ibn Saud in control as our regional partners. Uh, but it does provide the excuse, uh, the opportunity to uh, launch four or five month campaign in southern Iraq against the Ikhwan, really as a reaction uh, to this raid. And so... What are some of the other long-term consequences of this whole crisis? Does this lead to going forwards, the kind of increased militarization of the border? How does this play into some of the later treaties that were signed between the British and Ibn Saud? Yeah, I think it's uh, essential. I think this hardening of the boundaries in this kind of step-by-step manner is what makes possible the final demark- delimitation and demarcation of the boundary in in the 1930s. I've mentioned this, you know, several times in other sort of capacities, but it's it really is kind of stunning that so much of what the British projected or sought as territorial limits of mandate Iraq actually held and were obtained after, in some cases, you know, decades of governance and negotiation and work. Um, and I think by looking at these sorts of specific uh, localized events, we can see the work that goes into reifying and propping up uh, these projections of state power. You know, the, there was at the time a lot of uh, hand wringing over whether or not rebuilding a place like Busea was worth it, right? Because it had just kicked off this pretty significant conflict. Again, there was worry about angering Ibn Saud, or even worse, convincing Ibn Saud to take the gloves off and let the Ikhwan up into Iraq as sort of a proxy resistance force against the British. Uh, But in effect, the networks, again, the the air routes, the 
the fuel supply, the fuel dumps for airplanes, the guard posts that were established all the way up to really all the way up to the Jordanian border never went away. Um, and every year, Iraqi police and uh, British soldiers would be restationed. And every year, the tracks and the landing, the landing strips get a little more smoothed out and a little more built up. Um, they all attain, after a while, a permanent site on the map as a de facto border station. I mean, it's important to, to, to remember that none of them are on the border. Uh, they can't even see the border from where they are. You know, they're, you know, 40, 50, 60 miles at least from the border. But they are de facto border points because border enforcement at this time is still very much about the enforcement and the limitations on the movement of Bedouin. So you don't need to be at the border because that's not really what that's not really what is at stake. Uh, but this, I mean, again, I would hold that this enables the the delimitation of these boundaries and these final status talks because there's really no other option. Facts on the ground have been established by the time a final treaty is established with Ibn Saud about not just the boundaries of Iraq, but also Transjordan. Both uh, Ibn Saud has been recognized as the you know undisputed sovereign of uh, Nejd by the British, and he has his own network of de facto border posts, again, reaching all the way up towards the uh, Jordanian border. And we have the development of a, if not always effective, a recognizable uh, boundary or border regime where you have two sovereign or two governing entities, two states working with each other over the common goal of a boundary. They don't always agree on its exact specificities, but the new political order has carried the day and its recognition is really integral to the success and the legitimacy of both the British in Iraq and of Ibn Saud in his new kingdom. Okay. And so what are some of the long-term consequences for the Bedouin of these new borders? You know, we talked about raiding and the and the part of the goal of the borders and the security installations around them was to eliminate this practice of tribal raiding. Were there other instances that you came across in your research of how these borders changed um, or forced the adaptation of Bedouin lifestyles to adapt to this new security system? Yeah, well, another case that I'm actually doing uh, kind of further work on uh, now involves a similar sort of two groups of tribes in the Syrian desert who are similar to what we saw in southern Iraq, but this time through coordination between the British, between the British and the French in Syria, uh, is the identification of uh, we have uh, Syrian tribes, we have Syrian Bedouin, and we have Iraqi Bedouin. And in one case, we have two uh, two groups of the same tribe, right? A set of clans belonging to the same tribe in Iraq and Syria, uh, who are identified as Syrian and Iraqi. And there's a lot of sort of discursive work over how, well, you know, the French talking about how their tribes are much more settled and civilized, and they're all towing the line, 
Um, and it's their, you know, British, uh, or it's their Iraqi, you know, brothers basically who refuse to recognize, uh, this new political order and the tribes of people in Iraq are doing the same thing, right? No, it's the Syrians who keep crossing the border and bothering us. Uh, but this is an example of where each of these clans, we have the division of a tribe by a border and each of them, uh, the leaders of both. Uh, groups relatively quickly align themselves uh, with the interests of uh, Iraq and Syria. And this is what is you know, particularly interesting. The British use this as a way to sort of govern the border because now border disputes are not between them and the French, but it's uh, between uh, different tribes. So they kind of insulate themselves through the use of these you know, tribal shura councils. So when there's conflicts about border crossing and raids and things like this, they shroud it in the in this system of, you know, of tribal justice and kind of are able to keep their hands clean, make it look as if it's not this political project of establishing facts on the ground. The French and the British assign jobs to these tribes. They are given the mandate to patrol the border. They're armed. Uh, they're given stipends and they are given the mission to uh, patrol the boundary, uh, to protect and escort travel along the, the road between, between Baghdad or Mosul and Aleppo and Damascus. Uh, and likewise with the Syrian faction. Uh, they are also given positions of, you know, these these quasi-official uh, roles in the governance, the policing of their population. I mean, it's been written that the border means that for some, you know, merchants become smugglers if there's a border there, and you know, raiders become tax collectors. So the 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 manner in which in which Bedouin populations uh, and their sheikhs recognize the new sort of systems and logics at work across the sort of the mandate world is um, unceasingly fascinating in the way that they uh, become part of the governing apparatus and become part, ultimately part of the state. So, you know, in this case, Iraq and, and Syria. Yeah. I mean, in the context that I'm more familiar with, which is Jordan, um, we have, we see the same phenomenon occurring as well, where the Bedouin are tasked with essentially being policemen of, of the border region. But then over the years, this evolves into this elite status of the Bedouin within the Jordanian military and politics. Um, yeah, so definitely we, through this process, we get this kind of incorporation of the Bedouin into the modern nation state. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So maybe just a final question for you about maybe the longer term consequences of this process that you research. And I understand this is not sort of your area of expertise mm -hmm. anymore, but just thinking about the kind of modern geopolitics of this region, do you see consequences of these border-making processes playing out today? Do you see any ways in which the effects of British and Saudi decisions and Iraqi decisions that were made a century ago, do you see any ways in which these kind of reoccur in contemporary politics? Yeah, I mean, um, I mean, my own observations is that, you know, many of these boundaries 
particularly the boundaries that, you know, that I study between Iraq with Saudi Arabia and Iraq with Syria remain for a whole host of reasons. It's not a perfectly straight line, uh, but remain relatively uh, sort of isolated and both literally and, you know, sort of functionally distant from centralized authority in Iraq. We see this with the reliance on tribal levies during Iraq's, you know, war against Islamic State. You know, I mean, this is happening in Syria as well. Also, the logics, the the the, the practice of or the this this continued goal of an absolute or or sort of hard border. So there is, as of you know, four or five years ago, there is a a border fence between Iraq and Saudi Arabia. Now, this is also a response, you know, ostensibly to uh, Islamic State. And I, you know, we can, I think there's certainly a place to discuss the rhetorical and political value of building fences and walls with your neighbors. Uh, I don't think that's unique to uh, to this case. It's certainly not unique to you know, the United States's, you know, portrayal of the border with Mexico. But what does, you know, interest me with this, with this border fence is that if the goal is to prevent, from the Saudi point of view, if the goal is to prevent Islamic State terrorists from infiltrating Saudi Arabia from Iraq, when does that fence come down? When does this boundary become, you know, in effect softer, right? I don't think it will. <laughs> Uh, you know, these boundaries tend to to harden and calcify over time. And I don't see that sort of priority and that vision of uh, or that goal changing. So in in a similar way to uh, the Act Force campaign and this war against the Ikhwan of the Muter tribe in the middle and late 1920s, where the result is a uh, militarized southern desert uh, in Iraq. I don't think that, I mean, I think the legacy of this fence, the border fence uh, between Iraq and Saudi Arabia is going to last long, much longer than the, you know, let's, let's say, you know, the acute terror threat of, you know, ISIS uh, fighters. I mean, what, what interests me, and I've done, you know, no real sort of uh, research on this, uh, but what interests me is the the next step or the effect that that has on the way that states think about their neighbors, think about their their borders, uh, because it as the nature of the border changes, I think uh, the nature of the polity that it encompasses and purports to protect changes as well. Well, on that pessimistic note, I think we could end it there. Thank you so much for joining me and for sharing your research with us. That was really interesting. All right. Thank you uh, as well. I enjoyed it a lot. Thank you for listening. And of course, special thanks to Dr. Carl Shook for coming on to talk to me. I'll post some links and images and further resources related to the content of this episode on my Twitter at nomads underscore pod. So please check that out if you're interested. You can also contact me there or by email at digitalnomadspod at gmail.com. If you have any questions, comments, or feedback, or if there's a topic you'd like me to cover in the future. Thanks so much for listening.